invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you once again for this day. Thank you that yours is a love that has been expressed, not simply in words, uh, but in the most powerful way possible when you sent Jesus to die on that cross for our sins, giving us an opportunity, an opportunity to receive the forgiveness and peace with you that he and he alone can give us. Lord, I just ask uh, in the wonder of that love that in the next few minutes, as we consider your word, that you would, out of that love, speak to us personally, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey today, whether we would understand ourselves to be a Jesus follower or one who is maybe just beginning to investigate. Uh, the claims of Christ and the Bible, Lord, that you would meet us by your grace right where we are, and that we would be moved, we'd be touched, and even changed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, tomorrow night, if you were to turn on the uh, Chicago Cubs St. Louis Cardinal baseball game that is taking place in St. Louis. And if you looked a little bit higher up into the seating, in the area that I understand will be in the shade, you'll see me. That's right. This week, I get to do something I have never done before in my life, so that's kind of special, and that is to be live at a Chicago Cubs baseball game. Now, living 45 minutes from Chicago, very natural to be drawn to the Cubbies, even though they lose all the time, but that's okay. Every 100 years, we get a World Series. I mean, what more could you ask for? And, uh, I, and yet, I never went to one of their games. And, and as the story goes, uh, as it does quite often, uh, during a season, the Cubs are struggling. But a Pirates fan reminded me after first service that his team was significantly behind even the Cubs. So I felt better about that, you know. Just, at least we're not the Pirates, right? You know, that kind of a thing. But they're not doing well. And they started out with such, such you know, gusto. I mean, they were in first place for a while, and I mean, it was just going so well. And, and then loss and loss and loss and loss and defeat and more loss and nobody got to fly their little W flag because <laughs> they just kept losing and losing and going down, 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 down. And they may get to where the pirates are before this thing's all over. And it's got to the point where they're just saying, you know, hey, maybe we need to unload all our players and we just, you know, reset and sell everything and, you know, just sink the ship and maybe something will happen better next year. It's not good. It's just not good. But I'm going to be there and I'm going to be cheering. Hopefully for a win, but I'm not holding my breath. And this, this scene of a consistent pattern of losing of being in a place where inside we just want to win. We just want a W. 
I mean, every single where I, I turn and everywhere I go and everything I'm thinking about is just loss, 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 lose, lose, lose. You ever been there? Today's story is a story of victory. A victory coming uh, a, a, to a group of people who had and continued even this day to experience an incredible amount of hardship and loss. They needed a W. They needed a victory. God had made a promise that through his people, the people of Israel, a Messiah would come and that through him, Abraham, his descendants, the nations of the world would be blessed. And that promise apparently from all external signs, seemed to be in jeopardy as an order by the king of the Medo-Persian Empire within which the entire Jewish nations lived had been sent out an edict from this king ordering the annihilation and the decimation and the absolute destruction of every single Jewish man, woman, and child. This was hanging over their heads. And God, as we have watched in his providential hand, has established Esther as the queen of this, this, the empire at this time, about 500 years before Christ, about 2,500 years ago to us. And with, with her also established her older cousin slash adopted father as the prime minister replacing the prime minister who had conspired against the Jewish people to have them all annihilated and got the king with his ring to sign this edict of annihilation. Haman, at this point in the story, is removed from the story, but he is just the face, the deep roots of hatred and anti-Semitism were throughout this empire and they ran very deep, very deep. The Jews celebrated when Mordecai was able to write a second edict, but the second edict could not remove the first one. The second one could simply give the people of Israel the opportunity to defend themselves knowing with that edict then there would not be an engagement with the, the Medo-Persian forces and governors and all them to join in the slaughter of the Jews. And that simply the opportunity to defend themselves, they were celebrating, dancing in the streets. Just the opportunity to defend themselves. There hasn't been a fight yet. There hasn't been a win yet. There hasn't been any movement in the reality of this horrible edict over the top of them for their annihilation as a people. That hasn't been removed yet. It's still in play. And yet they celebrated. This picture is one that is not unfamiliar to us. I'm, I'm Evil, maniacal people plotting and planning to kill, slaughter, and destroy the Jewish people. 
We find the scene opening in chapter 9. After the second decree has been sent out, the remaining time, a few months, goes by, and now the date has come where the first edict was to be in effect, and now the second one on top of it, two competing edicts of the king happening on the very same day. Let's see what happens as we read the first 19 verses of chapter 9 today. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them, and all the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So the Jews went ahead, and on, on the appointed day struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa itself, the Jews killed 500 men. They also killed Parshen, etc., etc., all the ten sons of Haman. You're welcome to try to pronounce those. The enemy of the Jews, but they did not take any plunder. That very day when the king was informed of the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa, he called for Queen Esther. And he said, the Jews have killed 500 men in the fortress of Susa alone, as well as Haman's 10 sons. And if they have done that here, what has happened in the rest of the provinces? But now, what more do you want? It will be granted to you. Tell me, and I will do it. And Esther responded, if it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to do again tomorrow as they've done today. And let the bodies of, the, of Haman's ten sons be impaled on a pole. So the king agreed, and the decree was announced in Susa, and they impaled the bodies of Saint Haman's ten sons. Then the Jews at Susa gathered together on March 8th and killed 300 more men, and again they took no plunder. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces had gathered together to defend their lives. They gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not take any plunder. This was done throughout the provinces on March 7th and on March 8th. They rested, celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews at Susa killed their enemies on March 7th and again on March 8th, and they rested on March 9th, making that their day of feasting and gladness. So to this day... Rural Jews living in remote villages celebrate an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts of food to each other. Victory. When? Having been under the death sentence, God in his providential hand has made a way for them to defend themselves and they experienced an incredible victory, a deliverance over their enemies. This scene of, <clears throat> of battle, of war, of, of, uh, uh, of struggle uh, from the very 
beginning of, of the book of the Bible through the end of the book of the Bible, it is a very common theme that there is a battle that is raging. And there's a reason for that. Whether we are aware of it or not, we were born into a war. As you see, before God said, let there be, there were other beings that God had created. Satan, the angels, and they, before God created the universe that we know, time and space and us in his image, that we are told in the Bible that Satan rebelled against God wanting to establish himself as an object of worship and that a third of the angels fell with him. And into the reality of that spiritual uh, uh, falling of these particular creations of God, God then created the world and created people in his image. And for reasons in the mind of God, the spiritual forces of darkness and evil were permitted by God to test the new people that God had created. We were born into a war. The enemy, who is defeated, by the way, uh, he is in a place where his time is measured and it will come to an end. It's not a, gee, what's going to happen kind of battle. And in that time, his sole goal, the Bible tells us, is to destroy, to devour, to kill. And his target are those whom God loves. You are his target. Your destruction is his stated goal. And we see him coming after Adam and Eve very quickly. They're giving in to the temptation. Then the prophetic word that there will be one, as, he, as, as God is speaking to the serpent, that he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Speaking to that first prophetic word of Jesus. And so we are in this reality that there is a, a fight in the spiritual realms, and it, and it absolutely makes sense why the people of God, be they Jewish, be they Christian, are in this place of constant assault by this world and this world's systems. They are hated by, by, by the enemy. And their destruction is what he seeks. You see, if you and I aren't aware of the reality that we have an enemy too, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble. Uh, Paul, he was writing in Ephesians, and he was speaking to this, uh, and he, he had these things to say. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the schemes or the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, since that is true, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belts of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Paul, very clearly laying out to us that this war has not ceased. That the battle between God's people and the spiritual forces of darkness rages on. We're in a fight. We're in a fight. And if we are unaware or we are unprepared, it is a fight that we will not win. It'll be a fight where we continue to struggle. And what we, have, what we see as God moves, as we see in this story, that the people of God, as they come and they seek and they trust in God, as they move in faith, we see the providential hand of God at work establishing the path to victory. Here Paul says, I want you to understand how you enter into victory in your life. We need to know that we're in a fight. And we need to know how it is that we realize that victory. See, if we don't, if we don't understand that, that there is a, a horrible spiritual dark force coming up against us, we are not going to be prepared. We are not going to be in a position to, to stand, to resist, to stop his work. There will be continuous defeat. And we'll be asking ourselves, why is my face in the dirt again and again and again? I keep losing. Paul says, put on the armor. Is your armor on? Is your armor on? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you fully geared up? Are you prepared? You buckled up? got your shield the helmet are you are you do do we understand that we're entering that we every day every moment of our lives we are fighting we're fighting we're defending we're in that place of needing that victory and we sense it intuitively don't we that there's a fight there's a battle and what what happens what the devil does if if we're not with full armor and we're not prepared, is that he's going to convince us that our enemy is my spouse, my friend, my child, my coworker, my neighbor, my, my church family member. And, and I'm going to get convinced because his primary weapons is deceit and lies. I'm going to become convinced that I have to fight them. 
that they're my enemy. And so Paul, he's like, we don't fight with flesh and blood. It's the spiritual forces of evil reigned in the heavenly realms against us. Know who your enemy is or you start fighting the wrong people. And in the midst of all those bad fights, in the shadows is a very pleased Satan. That number one, you don't even realize he's at work in your life, trying to destroy you, your relationships, everything. Or that if you, if you, even if you know that, that you haven't attended to the armor to be prepared to fight him, you're too busy fighting somebody else. The wrong fights. Too many. Too many times we fight the wrong fights. Watch out. Be careful. Know who it is who's behind the scenes pulling the strings. Who it is that's, that's after your kids. Who it is that's after your marriage. After your future. After your health. After your mind. Know who you're fighting. If you don't know your enemy, you won't be prepared. You'll fight the wrong fights. People of Israel, in this particular scene, understood fully who their enemies were. They came at them. They came at them ready to kill them, ready to take everything they had. Hated the Jews. In verse 2, we tell us, we're told this. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid. And it's so important um, that, we, that we, we grab the significance of how they fought, because how they fought is the same way we need to fight. And we see it again in verse uh, uh, 15, maybe you'll hear it in this verse. Then the Jews at Susa gathered together. Together. See, this, this battle wasn't going to be won with one person standing in front of their house and another one, you know, five doors down, standing in front of their house, isolated and alone, when the mobs came to try and kill them and burn their house and steal everything. It wasn't going to win that fight that way because we are better together than we are apart. And they understood that. And so, in the months preceding the attacks from their enemy up against them, they were prepared, they were ready, they were organized, they had a plan, they had gathered together to take their stand. And you see, the body of Christ, as God has revealed it and built it through the power of his Holy Spirit, is to be one that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are brought into God's family. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are one in the Spirit. They are better together than apart. As a matter of fact, together the church knocks down the gates of hell. And this is why the devil is so intent on driving you from me and me from you. 
because he knows together, literally, we're invincible. Not because of our power, but because of the power of God at work. Nothing, nothing can stand against the body of Christ united in spirit and purpose. Oh, they couldn't stand, they couldn't, these, this, these mobs of people, these hating, they were hating, they could not stand against the Jews. They were ready because they came together. And this is exactly why the enemy wants you to get confused as to who your enemy is. Because you start fighting with the person there and the pew down a few ways and you know, the person behind you a little bit, or the person who lives in the house a couple of doors down, or the, the people in the office, and, and you got this whole, whole fighting thing going on, you think your spouse or your kid, and you're fighting with them, you know, guess who's not winning anywhere? See, the battle has come to us, and it's fierce, brutal. Destruction and death is the goal of the enemy. He knows his, his future is certain. Hell has been prepared for the devil and all of his angels. And his desire is to take as many of us with him as he possibly can. We are better together. If we aren't careful, we're going to drift into isolation. We're going to drift into this thinking, and I've heard many people say it, Jesus and me, Jesus and me, Jesus and me. No, <laughs> it's Jesus and we. We have to understand that. We've been, we're knit together. Uh, we're, we, we're, we're all gifted and equipped by the Holy Spirit for what purpose? To build each other up. You and I, I imagine, have probably sat at a few campfires in our day, and the logs are, are burning, and it's, oh, this is great, and, and then it starts to get a little late, and the mosquitoes start chewing our legs off, and we're saying to ourselves, you know what, it's probably time to call it a night. So what do we do? Grab a stick, and we move one log there, and Another log there, another one over there, and maybe another one over here. See, separated logs don't burn. They don't burn. The fire goes out. Separated followers of Jesus don't burn with the passion and the power of Christ. If you and I are isolated today, we're not, we're not taking our place alongside our brothers and sisters. We're not in the battle. We're isolated. The spiritual gifts that we've been given for the others are not in play, and the church suffers for it. You're needed, you're wanted. You're priceless in the kingdom of God. Isolated, isolated, disconnected relationally, disconnected from mission and purpose, and of heart and mind, you're in a place of vulnerability to 
to the real enemy who is driving the isolation in your life. Don't take my word for it. We read Hebrews chapter 10, 24, 25. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Okay, how do we do that? And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Let us not neglect being together. Don't neglect it. Don't get isolated. Don't be relationally uh, alone. There are, uh, Lone Ranger Christian is an oxymoron. It's we're together. We're united in spirit and purpose under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, given the only message of salvation that is available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for those who are being saved. That belongs to the church, and you are the church. And I need you. And you need me. We need each other to stand to remind each other, hey, where's your breastplate of righteousness today? Hey, where's that, that belt of truth? I don't see that on your armor here. You got people in your life who know you that well? Verse 16. We watch and we see they rise up. They take their stand in self-defense a great overwhelming victory. They gain relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not take any plunder. He says it three or four times. Why? It wasn't a fight that they wanted. They weren't looking for anybody else's stuff. They, 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 got, they got attacked. Overwhelming victory was experienced by the people of Israel on these days. Are you and I experiencing overwhelming victory today? Is that how we would describe our lives? There's victory, there's breakthrough, there's movement, there's healing, there's life, there's hope, there's strength in the trials. God is with me. And I'm with God's people. In Romans chapter 8, 35 through 37, we find for the believer in Jesus the source of that overwhelming victory in their life. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? The scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We're, we're, we're being slaughtered like sheep. He answers his own question. No, despite all these things, over 
overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Overwhelming victory is the inheritance of the believer in Jesus. Because it is Jesus' victory that we are believing and trusting in for the forgiveness of sin and peace with God. His victory is ours. His victory is overwhelming and it's ours. And if we don't know that, if we don't understand that, that we have this overwhelming victory, we will be doing life with expectations that are inconsistent with the realities of overwhelming victory. And when we know that we have it, our expectations change. If I know that I have Christ's overwhelming victory in my life, I don't wake up and look in the mirror and go, gee, I wonder how many times you're going to sin today, dude. I don't, I don't wake up and, and go, oh man, another lousy day. I know it's going to be awful and you know, this is, I'm just stuck and there's no way there's going to be any movement here or there. It's just blah. Where's the overwhelming victory? Oh, it doesn't mean, as he said, that I'm not going to be persecuted or have hardships. He didn't say that at all. He said in the midst of it, you'll experience the overwhelming victory. And you're going to enter it into, into it with each other. Into it with each other. Change our expectations. How do we live in that victory? I, I would recommend a, a very different start to the day than that one I just described. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1. And so... Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So we see something that's very counterintuitive in the world that we live in. He says that to enter into the experience of, 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 of the overwhelming victory of Jesus Christ, I have to die. I've got to lay myself down on the altar. And that's why over and over I encourage, I encourage us uh, on a regular basis, hey, give God those first five minutes of the day. You stop, you fall to your knees, and you say, God, here I am, take me. Take my mind, take my will, take my heart, take my body, that every thought, every desire, every word, every action, every, every ounce of love that you give me, everything is yours. Do with me as you please. Oh, I don't, I don't enter into the victory of Christ by telling Jesus, hey, Jesus, watch out. I'm going to really buckle down today. I'm going to try really, really hard, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this thing. I'm going to whoop this. Watch this, Jesus. I got it. No, that's overwhelming defeat, frustration, and, and disappointment. Every single time we get baited by our enemy into, think, into thinking we're going to muscle our own selves to victory. 
No, 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 no. Let's stay right on that altar. There in that place of humble submission and surrender to our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Every moment we're there is a moment where he says, watch what I do through you. Watch how I use you. Watch how I give you words that you never have thought before. Where I give you power to say no when you could never say no before. Watch when I give you a heart who not only is willing to forgive another who has wounded you, but you long and you desire passionately to forgive them. Watch what he does when you're on the altar. Anything that glorifies self Anything that says, look at me, is off course. It's always, look at him. Look at him. Can we bear witness today to the victories in our lives that we've experienced? Because the Lord Jesus had us. He brought us to a place of brokenness. He humbled us. We see reconciliation between spouses. We see children taking a different direction in life than the one that they were headed. We see addictions be broken. We see fear being abolished in the power and the strength of God. What's our story? What kind of stories are we telling? Stories of victory or stories of defeat? Father God, I thank you for the privilege of your word. I ask that the reality of the experience that you desire us to have, life and life to the fullest, would be ours. God, that we would embrace that your desire for us is good, and this victory that Jesus won is already ours. Show us how to enter into it. And Lord, if we're here this morning, we haven't yet trusted Jesus as our Savior, that we would begin to understand the nature of the battle that we are living in, and that the way to victory is Jesus, because He is the way and He is the truth. He is the life. In His name I pray, amen.